According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Isaiah. This morning, we are moving on to chapter 8. We're continuing our goal to, uh, to teach Isaiah in 66 chapters and 66 Sundays. And uh, so far, we've succeeded in seven Sundays, although... Last week broke my heart. I wanted to spend a whole month on a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, but we've got to move on. Uh, but don't worry, Emmanuel comes back in chapter 8, so we'll have a chance to follow up on uh, what we're going to look at here in the 22 verses we're going to cover today. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer so that each believer priest can humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and it is a blessing, Father, to study to show ourselves approved, to feast upon your truth, to feast upon this uh, prophet Isaiah, Father, who, uh, as we heard a moment ago, this is the book where the promise was given, that your word will not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it, and that includes this day. Father, this message on this day, to uh, in this place, to these people, you have a purpose for sending Isaiah chapter 8 forth. And I pray that we would be humble. As your word says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. And so, Father, on this day, I ask that we might receive the message from Isaiah chapter 8. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 8 begins with another sign. Remember, there was a sign in chapter 7, a sign that Ahaz would not ask for. And so the Lord himself had to give a sign that as a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And this becomes a sign. And this becomes a sign with the birth of a son who will have this very name. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for the testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. All right, new witnesses, because King Ahaz has no interest whatsoever in testifying to anything that Yahweh Elohim has to say. He has no interest in responding to the message that he was given in chapter 7. He rejects the promises of the Lord in chapter 7, and he turns to Assyria for help at the end of chapter 7. And so the Lord is done sending messages to Ahaz. He instead gives a sign and a testimony to two alternate witnesses, to um, Uriah the priest, and to Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah. Let me get down through verse 4, and then we'll uh, take a look at our outline here. So I approached the prophetess. We assume this is Mrs. Isaiah. I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which in Hebrew means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. The very sentence that was put on the tablet that was written out ahead of time as a prophecy of the baby that's going to be born here um, some nine months after the prophecy is given. Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. 
It stands as a marvelous follow-up message to the content of what was given in chapter 7, the message of encouragement that Ahaz refused to be encouraged by. Ahaz, king of Judah, was a wicked king, oh my, with wicked, with tragic consequences for his children and his nation. This is not the chapter 8 slideshow. This is the chapter 7 slideshow. All right. Sorry about that. Goodness. All right. Ahaz had no interest in the Lord's signs, so the Lord selected two other witnesses and gave Isaiah another son. Remember in chapter 7, he showed up with a son. That son was the son that he brought with him to speak to King Ahaz. The son was Shir Jeshub. We talked about Shir Jeshub last week. And uh, the, the little boy, we don't know his age, but he wasn't, uh, he was evidently a toddler of some sort, not uh, yet to the age of accountability. Nevertheless, now another son has to be born that uh, will communicate this particular message. And before this son is able to say mama or daddy, right? And it's always fun between parents to see uh, who the kid names first. And I think I've won every time. Dada is just easier to say than mama in, uh, in those things. But in this message now, the destruction of that Aramaic alliance, remember Aram and Israel had formed an alliance to attack Judah. That alliance is going to come to an end before Maher Shalal Hashbaz is old enough to say either mama or daddy in uh, the promise of this message here. Before the boy knows how to cry out my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be Uh, carried away before the king of Assyria. So swift is the booty, uh, speedy is the prey. And uh, the booty and the prey, both there speaking of Damascus and Samaria, that alliance between the Arameans and Israel in their uh, warfare against the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God is giving now an extra son. Isaiah is given another son beyond the children they already had. And who knows if they had other children besides Shir Jashub. But here he's going to approach the prophetess and they're going to have one more baby. And I don't know if if this means that they were so old and whatever, they were past having kids. But in any event, they have one more child and this is who they give birth to, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And so just as in the last chapter, uh, Shir Jashub was the sign for Ahaz, now in this chapter... Meher Shalal Hashbaz is going to be the sign for Uriah and Zechariah. And they're going to see this child and they're going to see, they're going to watch him born. They're going to watch him grow up and they're going to watch before he's old enough to say mama or daddy that all their fears are going to be taken care of, that the Aramean and, and Israel alliance is going to be destroyed. It's going to be done away with. And so the prophecy gets fulfilled and there we have it. Now, Verse 5, again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Oh, man, I had a good map for this one, too. Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. They... uh, they rejected God's provision. They thought something else was better. And now they're about to get overwhelmed. Now they're about to get drowned out. All right. When it comes down to it, the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Well, 
the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. It's a little brook. It's a little stream, really. It's a, it's a, it's a water-fed spring that comes up in Jerusalem, feeds into a pool, the pool of, Sh- of Shalom, the pool of Shalom there. And uh, Jesus had healed a man there. And other, uh, the man born blind was there by that pool. I've got a great map to show you. Oh, well, Lord's in charge. <laughs> um, but you think about it. Think about what might cause a nation to be boastful, what might cause a nation to be uh, prideful. And in the ancient world, and even maybe so much today, the, uh, the, the, the natural springs, the waters, the powerful rivers and so forth could be a source of national pride, could be a source of cultural pride. As, uh, you know, Ukrainians are fond of the Dnieper or, uh, you know, other cultures may be fond of their particular rivers. And the Egypt had the Nile and Damascus was very proud of their rivers, the waters of Damascus as an oasis in the midst of a lot of desert. Let's face it, Syria is a lot of desert. But Damascus is this marvelous uh, oasis with some rivers. They were very proud of those rivers. Uh, when, when the general got healed of his leprosy, he was kind of upset that Elisha told him to go wash in the, in the Jordan River seven times. And he's a bit offended at that. He said, we've got better rivers than that up in Damascus. All right, so very prideful. And to scorn, to scorn Shiloh, I find to be interesting because, it, yes, it's a small little brook. It's not a, a powerful river. But it's faithful, it's productive, and it's inside the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, particularly as they crafted the different aqueducts and they crafted the tunnels, Hezekiah is going to dig a tunnel here for this particular water source. And it becomes for them a provision, it becomes a well, it keeps them alive when they're under siege. So don't mock the little things. The little things that stay faithful is what God uses as He provides. All right? And don't be impressed with great big uh, glorious things because uh, they'll overwhelm you before you know it. And this is what happens here. Um, they wanted the other waters, and what they're going to end up with is Assyria. And uh, the Euphrates, in metaphor, the waters of the Euphrates River are going to rise up to their necks. You ever had something up to your neck? <laughs> you ever been fed up up to your neck? Okay, It's a biblical idiom, and it comes from here. So now, therefore, verse 7, Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. See, a river that you can control, a river you can tap and you can irrigate with and you can manage the flooding and so forth is a very marvelous blessing. But a, a river that's out of your control, that floods its banks, is destructive and deadly. And we see this here. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will even. It will reach even up to the neck. It will reach even up to the neck. Now this happens historically during Hezekiah's days. It happens historically when the Assyrians stand there and mock him from the uh, from the the field. It will ultimately have a prophetic fulfillment in the second advent of Jesus Christ in the great tribulation of Israel when they are again up to their neck with enemies surrounding them. It will reach even to the neck, but notice now, and the the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. All right? The name from the chapter 7 prophecy comes back now in chapter 8. Remember, Emmanuel is the name of the virgin's child. Emmanuel is the name of the promise coming Christ, God with us. And Emmanuel is the one that is called upon to look on his land his land filled with his enemies, threatening, surrounding and threatening his people. And so look upon, 
Um, the spread of its wings will fill upon the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. All right, so we have the, uh, the imagery here, and this is uh, fulfilled because Ahaz ignores the message of a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, doesn't care about that, doesn't care about serving Yahweh Elohim to begin with. And uh, so he turns to Assyria for help. He says, I know how I'll solve my problems. Who needs God? I'll fix it myself. And he makes a political deal with the king of Assyria. And he basically bribes the king of Assyria to go and and whoop up on uh, Damascus and Samaria. Well, it works, but it works too well, (laughs) right? And because the king of Assyria is not simply content to stop with Damascus and Samaria, he starts looking at Jerusalem. He starts looking at conquering even further. And as the metaphor says, the water Euphrates now is rising up to the neck. And yet, God permits it. He allows for the discipline. Although Judah would be disciplined, the promise of Emmanuel remains. The promise remains that God has declared that he is sending his Christ. He will redeem his people. Although Judah would be disciplined, the promise of Emmanuel remains. So what I love is the fact that chapter 8 does not cancel chapter 7. To me, that's a beautiful pattern here in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 7, he gives this beautiful prophecy, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Right? We know that. That's the the Christmas message. But he ignores it. He rejects it. The king wants nothing to do with it. Instead, he makes the deal with Assyria. And so now we have the message in Isaiah chapter 8, and now we know for a fact that I am not the author of the Bible, all right? Uh, Because you know what I would do if it was me, if I was God, and you ignored my message? Well, forget you, buddy, all right? I I, I made a promise, and you want nothing to do with it, see? But that's my humanity shining forth, my carnality shining forth. God doesn't do that particularly when God has made unconditional covenant promises. Unconditional covenant promises. Meaning, we can't violate those covenants. We can't break them. We can't throw them away. This, uh, this sequence from chapter 7 to chapter 8, I find it, there's, there's no more beautiful word that he could have used than Emmanuel in chapter 8 to, to demonstrate the fact that that promise is still valid, that God is going to be faithful. What does it say in Timothy? Let God be found true, though every man a liar, right? Or that's Romans. In Timothy, that uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right? And I love this. If you want more on this too, by the way, I would encourage you, um, on a homework basis, go to um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm highly skeptical that I'm going to have time to do this with you. But go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and what you're going to find there is you're going to find King David and his desire to build a temple. And and the Lord says, no, it's a great idea. I'm happy that you want to do such a thing, but it's not for you to do. Your son's going to do that. And so David uh, doesn't mope or complain. He thanks the Lord, and, and he has a grace approach. And even though he's not allowed to build the temple, he is given a covenant in that chapter. Second, uh, Second Samuel chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant. And it's in that chapter that he's promised that his descendant would be the eternal king of Israel. That his descendant would be the coming Messiah. All right? It's a powerful chapter. And what I love is, as you read that chapter, is that that chapter comes before 
chapter 11. It comes before Bathsheba. It comes before David's great failures. It comes before the adultery and the murder of Uriah and all of the ugliness. And so when Nathan then rebukes David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, again, what do we have? We have similar to what we have here in this progression from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 8. We have a faithless recipient of a promise who nevertheless is going to receive that promise anyway. And when Nathan exposes David in, in that powerful, I, mean, I love that gotcha moment in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You familiar with what I'm talking about? And the prophet Nathan comes to him and, makes, and tells him the story about a, a little lamb, a man with a little lamb. And he gets David so mad at the end of that story. And David said, that man deserves to die. <laughs> yep, you said it yourself. That man deserves to die, but you're not going to die, and here's why. Because God has made unconditional covenant promises with you. And that you are, this son of fornication is going to die, but the next son is going to be Solomon. The son that replaces that, that son of fornication is going to be Solomon. And the, the grace of God moves on in that plan. So just write those verses down, Second Samuel chapter 7, Second Samuel chapter 12. And we have this pattern that's a principle that uh, God's faithfulness is directed towards faithless David. God's faithfulness is demonstrated towards faithless Ahaz. God's faithfulness is demonstrated towards faithless Bob Bolander. All right, again and again and again, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And to me, it's one of the greatest messages in all the Bible is how faithful our God is. That's why we place our faith in him, because he is the faithful one. All right. Now, speaking of Emmanuel, your, uh, your land is filled with enemies, O Emmanuel. We have in verses 9 and 10 a taunt, a song, uh, a, a taunt song, as it's called. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. These are the enemies now that have flooded Judah, the enemies that are surrounding Jerusalem. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. All right, it's a taunt. It's uh, teasing, like children on the playground, teasing other children on the playground with some ditty, some song. All right? And even while they are surrounded by their enemies, they are able to sing this taunt song of Emmanuel. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand for Emmanuel. God is with us. This is the taunt song of Emmanuel. And we have it introduced here as a taunt song. Emmanuel becomes the taunt song for Israel to sing in the tribulation. By the way, we will have more taunt songs coming up. Isaiah 14 is a taunt song. Isaiah 14, 4, we, we look at this song quite a bit because it, it describes the fall of Satan and his five I wills. We do a lot of study in Isaiah 14, failing to recognize that it is a taunt song. In Isaiah 14, uh, 4, take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, and when are they going to take up this taunt? Ultimately speaking, it's in the day of the Lord. It's when the Lord gives you rest in uh, Isaiah 14, 3, it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say. 
And this message that we study with respect to the fall of Satan, this taunt against the fall of Satan, is the taunt song that Israel is able to sing after uh, Jesus Christ's victory at Armageddon. I believe it comes after the taunt song of Emmanuel that they're singing here in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. All right? Taunt songs. Say, I, don't, I never heard of such a thing. Well, here's two for you to look at. How about Micah 2.4? There's another taunt song. How about Habakkuk 2.6? There's another taunt song. All right? Micah 2. I don't have to spend a lot of time on these, but just know what they are, know where they are. And realize, you know what? There's a lot to pay attention to. Jonah, Micah. Remember, Micah's a contemporary with Isaiah. Even as Isaiah is talking about a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and Micah is the one saying, it's going to happen in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 2 and verse 4. On that day they will take up against you a taunt and, a, and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. And he exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. So there's a taunt. Actually, that's a taunt that's going against the Jewish people. The final example is Habakkuk 2.6. Habakkuk 2.6. We like Habakkuk 2, do we not? This is where we're told that the just shall live by faith. That's in verse 4. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Then there's other issues that are introduced here in verse uh, 5. Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. <laughs> you know? You take out a million dollars worth of loans and then sit there at home with a million dollars and say, hey, I'm a millionaire. You're not rich, all right? Because how did you get that? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. So, uh, so much for deficit spending. All right. Anyway, not to get lost in that, taunt songs. Yahweh Elohim celebrates everything that he does, and that includes his victory over evil. That includes when he vindicates his people. All right? There's nothing carnal about this. There's nothing wicked about, I told you so, right? But when he does issue his judicial recompense, when he rules on behalf of his nation, when he installs his Christ, when Emmanuel sits on the throne, there will be reasons to taunt. There will be reasons to sing, to celebrate, and the downfall of the enemies is for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Emmanuel here in Isaiah chapter 8 is a taunt song. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. I love this. This is a believer who's walking by faith who says, well, do what you want to do. I don't care. My God's in charge. You can plan all you want. The infinite planner is way ahead of you. Okay. Finite plans that are opposed to the infinite planner are doomed. Finite plans that are opposed to the infinite planner are doomed. Why would we want to create our own plan? Why would we want to devise our own course? And why would we try to set a course to thwart his plan? How's that going to happen? 
He has set his plan in motion since before the foundation of the world. I believe he's well aware of everything that we could possibly come up with, right? He knows every thought, the thoughts and intents of the heart are open and laid bare with the, in, in his eyes. They always have been. So here's some scripture for you. Um, not only here, um, you know, that your plan is thwarted, your proposals will not stand, for God is with us. But we, we had this back in chapter 7. We saw it last week in 7.7. 7, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. They had a whole, they had a whole plan to go up against Jerusalem and, and terror, terrorize it. They thought if they could gang up on them, that Aram and Israel could gang up on Judah, and they could overthrow King Ahaz, and they could put a puppet king in his place. That was their goal. That was their plan. They had this puppet king they were going to put in there. And uh, I forgot his name already. We looked at him last week. Um, But guess what? This puppet king isn't going to go there at all because God has made eternal promises to the son of David. It's going to be a Davidic throne. It will always be a Davidic throne. So good luck trying to replace the, the Davidic throne. How about some other passages? How about Job 5.12? Job 5.12 speaks of this. Good luck trying to thwart the plan of God. You may come up with a scheme, but God's not going to let it stand. Or Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. You know, the kings of the earth take their stand. They take counsel together. They devise a vain thing. Surely, if, if one king can't do it, maybe if all the kings come together and they unite their efforts, maybe if they have a unanimous United Nations resolution or something, the whole world comes together. He who sits in the heavens laughs, we're told. What kind of plan are you coming up with anyway that's hostile to the will of God? So Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. I'll turn to that one. I like that one. Psalm 33. I like all of these. You know, I had a witch one time that told me she was putting a curse on me. And I said, okay. (laughs) I'm not worried about it. Because it came from this principle here. Just do what you think you're going to do. My God's in charge, all right? And you've got demons you're working with and power that you're meddling with, but I know who defends me, and I'm not worried about it. So in Psalm 33:10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. It's a glorious promise. It's an absolutely glorious promise. And even the greatest achievements men ever come up with, the greatest achievements, the greatest goals, the greatest plans, everything that that a man can do, maybe he's the greatest whatever, the greatest businessman, the greatest military man, the greatest pastor, the greatest whatever. What happens when he's gone? (laughs) What happens in the next generation? Where does it go after that? All right. But Yahweh Elohim is the one who plans from generation to generation, from Alpha to Omega, and no purpose of His can be thwarted. have some other references too. How about uh, Proverbs 21.30? How about Acts 5.38 and 39? You know, Acts 5, Gamaliel actually has a little bit of wisdom there, and he says, you know, we're getting all crazy about these uh, Christian disciples here, and we, we better be careful. Because if this is of the Lord, we can't thwart it. Okay? And he said, if it's not of the Lord, then it'll blow off. Nothing will happen from it. It'll go away. But if it's from the Lord, we may find ourselves fighting against the Lord. Do we want to be fighting against the Lord? I don't believe Gamaliel believed that, but he was still stating a truth. 
If we are fighting against the Lord, our plan isn't going to work. His plan always works. All right. Verses 11 through 15. Conspiracy politics. Sometimes I think this was just written yesterday. Conspiracy politics. We have a prophecy here, and I believe the greatest fulfillment of this was the first advent of Jesus Christ, was the politics of his day, was the Sanhedrin of the first century. And all of the infighting between the Pharisees and Sadducees and all of the political movements involved. Isaiah 8.11, Thus uh, the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. All right, They do what they do, but come out from among them and be ye separate. Okay? Don't get caught up in that ugliness. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. They see one behind every corner. They're, they're convinced of every plot against them. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. How many people are just absolutely ecstatic over last Tuesday's elections and how many people are absolutely devastated and terrified by last Tuesday's elections? And I want to know, are we walking with the Lord and keeping our eyes on Scripture? None of the rest of that matters. All right, let's not get all wrapped up in, in things that don't matter. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. All right. Then, at this time where the conspiracy fever hits its pitch, then he shall become a sanctuary, both to, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. God made a provision for them, a provision for their rescue, a provision for their refuge, and they rejected it. The stone which the builders rejected. All right? We have the background between here and Psalms. We have the background here for much of our Christology as we understand Jesus Christ, our rock, the foundation of our church. Jesus Christ, this rock that, that we uh, love and embrace and rest upon and stand upon, was the very rock that they stumbled over, the very rock that they tripped over as a stumbling block, as a rock of offense. They were crushed, in fact, by this rock. All right, what do we get out of here? Goodness. He says, stand apart. Stand apart. What are you going to do when everybody says one thing and you know it's not biblical? Do you stand apart? Do you stand for truth? Every, every prophet had to make that choice because the prophets were given the unpopular messages and the false prophets were given all the happy, popular messages. And so the uh, false prophets were making all kinds of money hand over fist and the real prophets were getting thrown down wells and, and being abused and beaten and everything else. I like uh, Isaiah 8.11 and a good connection there with Ezekiel 2.8. Here's uh, a prophet in the exile who had to, uh, who had to know that, that uh, they were going to hate his message. Ezekiel 2.8. That, uh, hmm. He says, uh, the Lord says, Now you, son of man, there's so much in this. 
Verse 3 says, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. Okay? I mean, he told Ezekiel up front, you're going to have a rough ministry. No one's going to want to hear anything you have to say. All right? Thankfully, we don't have that today. I'd hate to be installed as the pastor of Austin Bible Church and have some kind of prophetic word from the Lord saying, by the way, you know, they're going to hate your guts for the next 20 years. All right? That's what Ezekiel had to deal with throughout the captivity. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. They will know. This just compounds their accountability and their discipline. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. Have you heard? (laughs) They are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Just in case you missed that. All right. Then verse 8, now you, son of man, Listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. All right? And this is the nature of it. This is the nature of these Old Testament prophets and what they had to deal with. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Okay? And here's Isaiah being told, don't walk in their walk. Step apart. Stand apart from your rebellious audience and walk with the Lord. Now, this stone to strike and this rock to stumble under stumble over. These are verses that we can take. We can use these in our evangelism. We should use these in in our evangelism. This passage here is referenced. uh, It's going to come up again in Isaiah 28. It's going to come up in Luke chapter 2. becomes a part of our Christmas message. It comes up again in the book of Romans, in Romans 9, when we talk about why God is not done with His program for Israel. It comes back again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, where we also are living stones. We are living stones, choice and precious in the sight of God. And we are being built up into the spiritual house with Christ Jesus as our cornerstone. But he is the stone over which they stumbled. The very Messiah, the very promised one. They've been waiting for a virgin to be born. And, and finally, the virgin born son of God walks among them and they crucify him. They stumble over their Emmanuel. And now they have to wait until they can call upon Emmanuel to save them when they're up to their necks again in the the Great Tribulation. All right? It's a beautiful thing to see how these chapters come together this way. Isaiah 28. Oh my goodness. Isaiah 28. In verse 16, he comes back to the concept again of the stone. So stay tuned. 20 weeks from now, we'll be in this chapter. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed or disturbed all right no one who's ever placed their faith in christ has ever regretted it (laughs) okay i love this promise here's the costly cornerstone and yet they reject it they've made a covenant with sheol they made a covenant with death they're going to reject this costly cornerstone 
And so they're going to stumble. They're going to be broken. They're going to be trampled. There's judgment in this chapter. Very important judgment in this chapter. In fact, we'll have to tie this together when we go through this chapter. This is the background for the gift of tongues in the early church. This chapter is the verse, uh, a little bit earlier than this, in verse 11, he will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. The gift of tongues that was exhibited by the early church was the fulfillment of this chapter. It was a warning to the Jewish people that they have lost their stewardship and they're about to face their national destruction. And 1 Corinthians 14 is conclusive in proving this when you, when you connect Isaiah 28 and 1 Corinthians 14. Anyway, stay tuned. In, in 20 weeks, we'll get to this chapter and we'll demonstrate the nature of that. The stone to strike and the rock to stumble over is a very sad prophecy for the Jewish people. And it's interesting. Of course, Jesus is what binds all of us. We're going to partake of communion here in just a few minutes. And we're going to celebrate Jesus. And, and the, the church members and, and our visitors and guests, anyone that names the name of Christ is, is more than welcome to join with us in communion because it is our ceremony to celebrate Jesus. We proclaim his death until he comes. And so Jesus is our precious name that we rest upon as, as a rock of strength and refuge. And yet, to the Jewish people, that refuge is exactly what they stumbled over. Finally, verses 16 through 22, the last part of this. Bind up the testimony. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. This kind of language is also featured in Daniel, it's featured in Jeremiah, it's featured in other prophets. Uh, When, in fact, the prophet's spoken message was rejected, thank God the written message got canonized, that the Holy Spirit took these uh, sermons and put them into the Hebrew Scriptures so that in a future point of time, ultimately the tribulation of Israel, Israel, the Jewish people, will be able to look at their own Scriptures and find all the answers they've ever needed. They will find all the answers they're going to need to endure hell on earth, to endure the coming tribulation of Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I, Isaiah speaking now, will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Remember, in the church age, the plan for Israel is on hold. A partial hardening has occurred until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But he's not done with the Jewish people. He will resume his program for Israel. He will stop hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. I and the children whom the Lord has given me. This includes Shir Jeshub, a a remnant shall return. This includes Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. But mostly, this, this refers to Emmanuel, the prophetic son that he was given in prophecy, the promise that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The children that Isaiah talks about is all the encouragement that Israel needs. Wow. When they say to you, verse 19, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Why is it that everybody wants to go everywhere else under the sun except the Word of God for their answers? 
Why do they want to turn to earthly science? Why do they want to turn to demonism? Why do they want to turn to philosophy? Why do they want to turn to Freud? Why do they want to turn to, I mean, you name it. They're going to turn to everything under the sun, mediums and spiritists, whisperers and mutterers. Should not a people consult their God? (laughs) We are the children. Israel could say, we are the children of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. This is why it gets so rebuking when he says in chapter 53, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, he's speaking to his people and they're not listening. Why would we turn anywhere else? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? You're going to go to some witch doctor and try to bring up the shade of Samuel or something? You're going to try to speak to a dead person to learn something about what's going on here? To the law and to the testimony. In other words, we we would say today, to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. To the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Well... They will finally, they will finally do this. The gloom will be given way. The darkness will give away to light. When the Lord speaks to his people, why look elsewhere? (laughs) Why look elsewhere? Remember when the crowds were abandoning uh, Jesus left and right, and he turns to his disciples, he says, you don't also want to leave, do you? And Peter said, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. That that's that so speaks to me. It's like I wouldn't trade Austin Bible Church for all the tea in China. Where where would I go, Lord? Right? He has truth. He's the God of truth. When the Lord speaks to his people, why look elsewhere? Why turn to idols when God has already promised his blessings? Shir Jashub, Emmanuel, and Maher Shalal Hashbaz are all sufficient to teach Israel everything that they will need in their coming tribulation. This very doctrine, I believe Isaiah is going to be a, a pivotal book for Jewish people after the rapture of the church. A pivotal book. I think chapter 53 will result in the bulk of those 144,000 getting saved. They're going to realize that they crucified their Messiah. They're going to have to call upon Emmanuel to save them when they know that they put Emmanuel on the cross in his first advent. Scripture says they will look upon him whom they pierced and yet they will call out upon him. Jesus promised, your house is being left to you desolate. Behold, I will not come again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, there's a lot more, but this is, uh, this is our time today. I don't want to go over time and then try to rush through communion because this is our fellowship. This is our um, intimate proclamation. Each one of us has the opportunity to testify that I am bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and we proclaim his death until he comes. Father, I thank you for the prophet Isaiah. Father, I believe the 66 books of Isaiah can teach, or the 66 chapters of Isaiah, Father, can teach the 66 books of the Bible. We have a comprehensive message in in this book that matches the comprehensive message of all of Scripture. And Father, I pray that we might embrace these messages. We might even see, Father, how through these prophetic messages we could be evangelistic towards Jewish people, Father, and uh, make use of these things in our thinking. Uh, Isaiah is largely neglected in a lot of synagogues and a lot of Jewish uh, applications. They don't pay much attention to it. And if someone brings Isaiah 53 to their attention, they've got these kind of sort of answers prepared. But 
Father, I believe that uh, these messages are powerful. And um, if they're humble, if they're hungry, if they really want the answers, these are the verses we can make use of. So, Father, equip us to uh, take hold of these uh, doctrines, these promises, these principles, that we might be effective uh, servants on your behalf in, uh, in this lost and dying world. Thank you for the faithful promise of Emmanuel, the faithful promise that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And, Father, that happened. That happened in a manger in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. A virgin conceived and bore a son, and Joseph was so faithful. He was humble before you. He trusted in your promise. He took Mary to be his wife, even though she was pregnant. He accepted your promise that the child was born of the Holy Spirit and and that she was a virgin. And together they raised the humanity of our Savior. And I thank you for that. And Father, I thank you that the Emmanuel promise was uh, had a first Advent application. It has a second Advent application. I pray that each one of us, Father, might be um, might be living testimonies of this Emmanuel, Father, that we might uh, proclaim salvation in Christ and Christ alone. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.